Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 262 for the 7th of June, 2017. I'm Chester Wisniewski coming to you from Vancouver, and this week my co-host is John Shire. Welcome back, John. Good afternoon, Chester. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back. We've, we've actually seen each other quite a lot recently and that we've been traveling together and uh, both of us just getting back from sharing all of our research information with our partners in, in Bangkok for the Asia-Pac region. So it was great seeing a lot of our, uh, our friends and partners out there. And uh, while we were gone, there's been a bit of news again. Uh, we're trying to get back in this more regular habit of the chat chat and we, we missed a week while we were away. There's plenty of things to chat about and politics isn't really failing us on this front. We have this, uh, this document that that was leaked from the NSA regarding the uh, alleged hacking of the U.S. elections by the Russians. We don't generally get into politics here on the chat chat, but I think this is a good opportunity to talk a little bit about spear phishing. You know, taking a quick look at uh, what allegedly happened here with these uh, seven targeted emails and a document and macros and all this. What are your thoughts? Well, taking a step back, you know, you say we don't often cover politics. I think, uh, unfortunately, right now, politics is forcing us to cover some of these security issues. Uh, as far as what looks to have happened is that, you know, it's a classic spear phishing attack where we grab some credentials, we establish a position on the network and either move laterally or use that to further our goals into deeper penetration or to you know move to, to another target. And uh, in this case, it appears to have used uh, document malware as well uh, to infect some of the machines. And, you know, while this is a nation state actor that's alleged to have done this in this case, what I often am concerned with is that a lot of these tactics do move downstream to you know your everyday companies. Yeah, I mean, this was a textbook case of how this type of operation works. And I was kind of happy to see the leak from, uh, again, ignoring the how I feel about it politically, but happy to see it because we regularly explain to people, this is how they're going to get into your network. And, and we can never share any examples because if it happens to one of our clients, uh, we're covered under an NDA and we can't necessarily talk about who it was or the details of what happened. And it makes it hard for these things to seem real enough to get people to take it seriously. And in this case, you know, it's a small little election software company and, uh, you know, in this and a nation state actor. But as you say, it's not just nation state actors. Now, this seems to be incredibly well executed in that the, the Russians apparently even were able to capture two-factor authentication tokens and use them within the, the validity time window to compromise accounts, which you might not find in your average cyber criminal's capabilities. But the, the whole process of how it unfolded of a limited number of emails, uh, a document attachment, taking advantage of an unpatched uh, word vulnerability, not a zero day, just, you know, perhaps those computers weren't up to date because it's just this small little firm that probably struggles to keep their systems up to date just like everyone else does and and how that led to information of theirs being stolen to then attack a further target etc uh when you're after data theft this is a textbook way that it's going to unfold yeah and i think you hit on an interesting point there you said it's not a zero day and if you read a lot of the tech media these days the word zero day gets used quite loosely sometimes they'll say something like zero day malware and i just don't agree with that term because a true zero day requires there to be no patch available at least uh for it to to, to be you know a true zero day this is where as you say there are some 
basic things that people can do, such as keeping your systems patched. It's also another good example of something that we've been talking about for a little while now in, in terms of building a security culture. Even if somebody falls for a phishing attack or maybe even a spear phishing attack, if you, the, the earlier you can detect that, the better you are at being able to then minimize or mitigate the additional damage that's being done. I realize in, this, in the spear phishing attack, I, I guess by definition, you would not notice. But even if somebody has an inkling that maybe what they just entered their credentials into might not have been the legitimate site or the legitimate application, and they let their security group know, that turns into a, a quite a, an easy win for the security team once they can actually start to investigate the issue. Yeah, and it also shows that it's not necessarily who you are. Sometimes it's who you know. You can be a target even if you are a small, insignificant company. And it doesn't look like the the this election software company was targeted so that they could compromise voting machines. It looks like they were targeted because they had information that would be value to further some other thing. And uh, in this case, it looks like contacts for election officials at uh, maybe state and local municipalities around the United States. So everybody needs to be on guard, no matter how insignificant you think you are. And it's also an opportunity to take advantage of things like, you know, exploit mitigation software. If you're bad at patching, you can still detect exploits even if they're not zero day, right? Like we, we talk about zero day protection when you're when you're looking at a lot of next gen endpoint solutions, and it's not they don't have to be a zero day to, to be still protected from them with software like that. And another thing I like that um, we do at Sophos, which is you can add a, a banner to incoming messages through your mail gateway that tell you the message came from an outside source, and I think that's really important. When we get messages internally at Sophos, they always have this little banner at the top that goes, "This message, you know, was sent." from an external source, be careful. And if it's impersonating a Sophos employee or any other kind of you know, Sophos IT or something like that, we're then on guard to, to, to watch out. And, and that's a simple, cost-free way to provide another layer of protection against a lot of uh, phishing and impersonation attacks. Moving along to the latest Android scare, uh, I guess we, we call the Judy malware, and it may also have been referred to as uh, Fireball, which is uh, sort of an advertising scam. I mean, it's, it's one of these things we've decided at Sophos to classify it as a PUA, which is a potentially unwanted application. And the reason for that is there was no real harm done to the end user other than maybe a little bit of uh, extra data on their phone being consumed. But what it really is, is a series of semi-legitimate applications uh, all over the Android uh, Google Play Store that generated fake clicks on advertising to generate a whole bunch of ad revenue for the software distributors illegitimately. So if the, if one of these apps or games got loaded onto your phone, uh, you might incur some data charges because you're actually in the background secretly clicking on a bunch of ads that you didn't know was happening. But the game itself is legitimate and it wasn't you know stealing your data or texting you know uh, toll numbers or doing anything like that. I mean, is there is there anything Google can do about this kind of thing? I mean, you know, we, we obviously with our security software, we're blocking it for our customers or optionally blocking potentially unwanted applications. But is this a is this a policing of the store issue? I mean, is there a reason that we're hearing about it on Google Store and not in the Apple Store? <laughs> well, it's funny. Bef before the podcast, uh, you mentioned maybe we should just stop installing apps on our phones now. And, uh, you know, this kind of seems like one of those situations, doesn't it? Because the games were benign in the sense that they weren't doing anything to harm your security they might have been potentially harming your, your privacy depending on the, the types of things the the types of data that they might have been gathering but uh, other than that yeah it was just a, 
an, an abuse of the of the Google policies, and and that's why Google chose to remove them in the end. I, my feeling is that you know Google tries to be very open and welcoming to any and all app developers, other than Amazon, uh, other than Amazon, and as such, you know they maybe they're just not doing as rigorous a check as maybe the Apple Store is. Now, that's not to say that Apple's immune. We've seen things sneak into the Apple Store from time to time, but in this case, this was a legitimate developer that decided to do something a little dodgy on the side. So yeah, I, I'm really not sure what to make of how to solve this problem. Personally, I you know I don't really game much on my phone. I, I do have a couple of games on them, but other than that, you know, I just generally stick with some apps that are published by you know prominent developers of, of some larger companies. That's not to say that I won't get in trouble there, but I just try not to load as much as many apps on my phone as uh, as I can. Yeah, it is a challenging problem. And I looked at this and went, well, even if I was black box testing this, I would have seen all these call outs to ad networks. But I actually see that in almost all free apps. They all call out to a ton of ad networks. In fact, I presented on this at the RSA conference a year and a half ago, and I was quite shocked at how many, quote, legitimate apps like Skype were calling out to 50 billion ad networks every time you launch them. Well, it also comes down to the fact that we've kind of made this model the de facto model for consuming services and, you know, whether they're services, uh, web services or, or apps on mobile devices. This ad supported model is is what we've chosen as a de facto model. Maybe if we had chosen to go the other way of, of just staying with the, you know, the 99 cent app or whatever whatever price you want to charge with a dose of transparency maybe wouldn't we wouldn't have this problem and and this whole lure of free is while while great uh, it does tend to harm us in the end because the data that is being gathered is in many times your personal and private data and that's what's being used to support the services that you're using well that could be why we see less of this in the app store because of course most apple apps you do actually pay for and apple has much stricter policies around how advertising and uh, these you know call outs can work and because you can't monetize that as well, you end up having to pay $2.99. But we've, we've gone round and round on this type of thing. I mean, we've talked about, hey, if we only could just pay for Facebook and not be exploited, it would be great. And that hasn't happened either. Moving along, some really disappointing news. And uh, I, I've never used this particular product, but uh, one login had a, a breach notification for their North American customers. One login is one of these services similar to, say, 1Password or LastPass, where you can store your passwords in the cloud and with just one login, be able to easily have you know different passwords on all your different websites and this kind of thing. And I say I'm disappointed pointed not because I necessarily had any expectation positive or negative about the one login company, but I'm disappointed because this starts to undermine some of the advice we've been sharing with people going, hey, you know, you got to have separate passwords everywhere. Make sure you use a password manager. And then now a password manager is breached. It sounds like uh, it's unknown whether the criminals are able to decrypt the uh, stolen data or not. Uh, the data was encrypted that was stolen, but the criminals may have had access to the keys. And that should never happen within a password management um, application. But apparently the architecture of one login was not sufficient to prevent that. So, you know, now what do you are, do you give up your password manager or are you, are you still using one? I am. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's time to give up password managers. We, we, we've long said that that was, you know, the one of the major risk factors with, with all of this is you've got the one key to rule them all. And if that gets compromised, then you're kind of dead in the water at that point. But I think when shopping for a password manager, uh, you need to maybe, maybe be a little bit more discerning, do a little bit more research. I, 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 can, I realize this can be tough for people that may not be uh, as technically uh, inclined or, or as technically read as, as you and I are um, and, and understanding the crypto and understanding hashing and 
and all the stuff that goes into making uh, a password manager secure and, and the, the storage of, of passwords secure can be a bit of a burden. But I think doing your homework is part of that. And I think also some transparency on the part of the services that are providing these password managers is also important. I think there's a reason why a lot of technologists prefer something like KeePass because of its transparency being open source. But there's you know, some usability issues with KeePass. It's a bit of a science project, whereas something like LastPass, for example, uh, is very user-friendly, very usable. It's cross-platform, but, but it's semi-closed source. And I say semi-closed source because they have had some third parties look at their code. So, you know, there are some other choices out there that do provide you with some information about the way that they operate. And I think that's the important bit. If you want to choose a password manager, maybe go for the one that gives you as much information about the way that they handle and process your information, your your passwords, and then look at the usability and the features. Yeah, it's a complicated trade-off as always. I mean, I, I moved from a commercial password manager to a combination of Git, uh, GPG, and a, a Firefox plugin about year and a half, two years ago, because I was getting a little concerned about the privacy practices of the provider I was using. And it's hard, right? Because what I'm doing works brilliantly for me. Uh, I run my own cloud, if you will, and that my Git repositories on a server I run. So I still have my passwords in the cloud available to me everywhere I go. I have the convenience that I had with a commercial manager, but I own the storage and I know they're encrypted because I'm using my GPG keys to encrypt them and you know this kind of thing. But that's way beyond the capability of most people out there and it's not a practical solution to the problem it just is the best solution to the problem for me because i'm willing to deal with a minor amount of hassle and a day of my life that's gone that i used to set it all up and there's i guess like usual everything from you know the easiest thing in the world to the hardest thing in the world and somewhere on that spectrum i think what most people need to aim for is the the most difficult thing they're willing to tolerate and hopefully that includes two-factor authentication. It includes vetting the vendor if it's a commercial product, et cetera, and deciding your level of comfort on that spectrum. In the corporate world, if you're looking at providing this as a service for your employees, I think one of the key things uh, that you need to look at is, is it something you can host yourself or are you reliant on a third party who won't disclose how their encryption algorithms work, how their data handling processes and policies work, et cetera, as you mentioned, because I, I, I think those things need to be transparent and no different than many of our products. There's free and open source com competitors, there's commercial competitors, there's everything in between. And the reason that you often win someone's business is not necessarily because the code was secret or the methodologies were secret. You win someone's business because it's easy to use, you have a trust relationship, you provide great technical support, etc. And I hope that the password management companies are listening and are more open with sharing how everything works in as much detail as possible because that's just going to give me more confidence in them and they're going to win more business. I don't think it's going to be uh, something that will harm them. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, a couple last stories that... Uh We'll wrap up quickly here. Good news in that the Crisis Ransomware Group has posted the unlock keys to Pastebin. Now, that's kind of interesting. You know, it's not a strategy to hope that the machine you've had held hostage uh, ultimately has the people who made the ransomware get bored and post the keys publicly. We don't really have any idea why the Crisis guy published these keys, but they did. 
Um, my takeaway was simply a reminder to people that if you're one of the good guys and you don't pay the ransom, which we do encourage you not to pay the ransom, but you have a machine that had some rather valuable data locked up on it, it's not a bad idea to stick that hard drive in the safe deposit box or in the storeroom for a year or two, just in case before that data is no longer useful, the bad guys either go to jail, uh, get afraid, uh, get bored, feel generous, whatever might happen. This is the third or fourth time that we've had a story that uh, bad guys have given up the master keys to decrypt locked up data. Uh, it's not a bad idea to keep that data around. Uh, yeah, storage is cheap, right? So why not just go grab a brand new, maybe faster SSD drive to put in that computer uh, and, and as you say, tuck that other one away just in case. And then you can you know, perform your backup onto that new drive. Yeah, it's not a strategy to do this, to, to, to just rely simply on, on the dumb luck that maybe this will get decrypted at some point. But, you know, you never know, right? And, and if you can maybe retrieve something of low value that might still be useful to you down the road, then hey, why not? Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's one of these situations, you know, you try to prevent if you fail at prevention, hopefully you go to your backups and you don't really worry about that data and you chuck everything away. But on the rare occasion where everything has failed and the data is locked up and you're in a position where you're you're not going to pay that ransom, uh, hopefully that's pretty rare. And it's just a couple hard drives here and there, but it might be worth sitting on them. So now the last story uh, is a Chrome. Well, I'm going to call it a bug. Now, there's been a lot of uh, dancing around, and this happens in any development group with, uh, you know, you file something in a Jira ticket or GitHub or this kind of thing, and it gets marked by design, won't fix. And you're like, no, 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 it's a bug. It doesn't work right. No, no, by design, won't fix. And we're in one of these situations with Google again, where there's a bit of a debate about whether it's truly a bug. Uh, Google says it's not, but um, I think I disagree. And, and what happens is uh, a website can access your webcam and your microphone by asking for permission. And in fact, if you use any of uh, these uh, real-time conferencing services, they often have that box pop up in Firefox, Chrome, whatever you have going, oh, I want you know, access to your microphone, your video camera. Now, once you allow that, it's kind of in perpetuity that that site can now access your webcam and camera. Uh, and, and Chrome usually puts a little red dot in the toolbar to let you know that you're being recorded. So there's sort of like the red light on your webcam turning on type of thing. But it doesn't always do it. And it turns out uh, once you've granted permission to that site, it can just turn your microphone on anytime it wants. And there's not necessarily any notification that's happening. And some security researchers filed this as a bug and uh, Google says no. Well, they sure have. And if we break this down a little bit into its component parts, you know, there's the, the first piece, which is a website requesting access to your webcam and microphone. That acknowledgement is, is on the user to say, yes, I will allow this or not. And I think that's done right. You do need to seek the user's permission before using one of those resources. Let me just add that also the red dot is a nice little indicator. Now, Google says this is a best effort to put the red dot on there. You know, I'm not a UI programmer, so I don't know if this is a trivial thing or not. But where it falls apart is that perpetuity part. You know, if if the behavior, the default behavior was that it would ask me this all the time, then I think a lot of us might just go, okay, well, you know, I guess we can let this one slide. Or even if there was a checkbox that said, don't remind me again, accept my acknowledgement of these permissions, then you could shift the, the burden or the blame on the user. But the fact that this is in perpetuity and the fact that a potential cross-site scripting bug could get uh, used to uh, by malware or, or by a malicious actor to then you know surreptitiously record you I think is uh, just a 
big mistake on Google's part. Well, Google's had a habit of this lately with Chrome, and it's quite concerning. I, I, I stopped using Chrome a few years ago, and I'm quite happy about it now because this is the type of behavior that led me to leave Chrome. And another one that was recent was the change of the padlock behavior in Chrome, where it no longer will show you the TLS certificate so that you can inspect it and see the if it's what you expect. And it's now buried under a developer tools option seven menus deep, and it's just insane to get to. And it's something I personally use almost every day. And I would find it maddening to have to access it that way. And I'm glad that in Firefox, I can still just click the little padlock and go view certificate. That's what the padlock represents. Why, why, why does it let me choose my MIDI settings in Chrome? I mean, it's just craziness. And um, to me, this is a disregard for uh, people's ability to keep themselves private and respect and manage their privacy in a, in a reasonable manner. And, and it's a, it's a, when it happened once, it might have been an accident. When it happened the second time, it was a little concerning. Now, this is at least the third or fourth time it's happened. And to me, that's a trend. And that means Google doesn't care. And that's, uh, I don't, uh, I never like to see that from a market leader. I always want the market leader to be able to make a tough call and sometimes make the, the call of making something a little less convenient because it's in your best interest. And maybe that's not how you become a market leader. But in this case, I have to, I have to say won't fix. Uh, that means for me, Chrome is a won't use. Well said. And on that note, I'm going to conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 262. As always, for the latest news and information, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on RSS, on iTunes, on TuneIn, uh, the Google Play Store, and anywhere else that fine podcasts are found, and at soundcloud.com slash sofasecurity. And until next time, stay secure.